You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to remind you that tickets are now on sale for our 300th episode celebration here in New York City. It's really going to be a fun night. It takes place on June 14th at the Green Space, and I'll be hosting a panel with three of the most esteemed designers in the industry, Gail Anderson, Eddie Opara, and Kat Small. I'm telling you, you don't want to miss this. Tickets are on sale now, so head on over to eventbrite.com and search for Revision Path, or you can check out the show notes for the ticket link. This event is bound to sell out, so don't wait. Get your tickets today. Now for this week's interview. We're talking with New York-based founder, senior designer, brand consultant, and art director, Cher Biggers. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Cher Biggers, and I am a founder of a startup called Atara. It's a fashion phone case brand, and it is my second fashion phone case brand. And um, I'm in the midst of seeking investment on that. I am also a senior designer and art director. And my full-time job at this moment, or I'd say part-time job along with Atara, is um, a brand consultant. And I do that for startup brands and medium-sized brands and solopreneurs. Let's talk about Atara. I'm really curious about the phone cases because so I have kind of a, I don't want to say it's an off-brand phone. It's starting to become more popular. It's a, it's an Android uh, OnePlus 6. And every time I see all these great fancy phone cases, it's always only for iPhone. And I think it just recently has started to branch into like Samsung, Galaxy, whatever, whatever. Um, why'd you decide to go into phone cases? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, I actually... In college, actually, while I was at the Portfolio Center in Atlanta uh, for design school, I like ran out of money to pay for my last year of college there. And, you know, it's a private institution. So I only had like a certain amount of funds for it. And I had left advertising in order to go to design school. Uh, and I had like a pretty you know, nice salary. And so I had like a sports car and I had a loft and then here I was going back to school and it was like, I was starting from scratch. So I ran out of money after my first year. And then second year, um, it was time to pay tuition and, and it was like over Christmas break and it was due in like less than a week. And so I just like needed like <laughs> a quick idea <laughs> to like make some money really quickly. And I'm a woman of faith. So I, to be honest with you, I can't really take the credit for this because I just said, God, like I need an idea immediately. Like, give me a dream, give me something. And I went to sleep. I dreamed of accessories flying in the air and I had opened an Etsy shop like a few months before that, but I didn't do anything with it. Like it was just there. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I dreamed of like all these accessories flying in the air. It was like coasters. It was like all kinds of random accessories. And I woke up and I just knew that I needed to pursue the Etsy shop and sell accessories and put my designs on them. So 
I quickly got in touch with like a manufacturer in China to see if they would be willing to work with me. And they were. And I just started putting designs together. I like mocked up some photos of the designs in um, Photoshop and made it look like a photo shoot, but it wasn't. And um, <laughs> and it, actually Beyonce came out with her album. I think it was called Beyonce in 2013 going on to 14 because that was December. And I ended up putting like a bunch of her quotes and stuff on the back of some phone cases because I was like a big fan of hers. Mm. And then I put it on Tumblr. I had like no following at all on Tumblr. I was just like on there for inspiration, like to, to look at design inspiration. I put the photos up and they went viral and, oh. and my shop like blew up overnight. <laughs> so it was like on <laughs> Etsy, it was like celebrities and all sorts of people buying for me and posting the, the pictures of it. Um, so that was like really cool. And to be honest with you, like I had all my bills paid in like a week. <laughs> And then I think I had, I can't remember exactly the exact amount of money that I made by week two, but it was some thousands of dollars. And I was like, okay, I'm sitting on something here. So I started putting out a bunch of other types of phone case accessories and I just took it from there. And I I saw how much like I saw how much of a need there was in the, in the area, especially at that time, there were not a ton of like, really nicely designed phone cases. So I was able to put like my new aesthetic, which is a little bit more highbrow. I was able to apply that to phone cases, which is very rare because if you've seen phone case designs, they're usually cheesy, teeny bopper, or, you know, or like (laughs) plastic kind of like junk. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, that's actually how I got into the area. And, and I came up with another, solid idea for it so i'm taking it up a notch this second time wow that's i mean that really sounds like an overnight success story i had no idea people were that fanatic about phone cases but then i guess when you put beyonce (laughs) with it that's i mean that's amazing though that's that's really something how is the business going so far so now it's going pretty well. I haven't launched yet. I am now in the um, investment phase. I'm trying okay. to get somebody to back me because the this this time around, I'm not doing like graphics on a case. Uh, I am actually doing like materials, embroidery. Like I'm really, really taking it up a notch or I, more like a few notches. I'm taking it up for these phone cases and I'm trying to do something nobody has ever seen before on phone cases. So this is like, it's so new that I'm having a hard time finding a manufacturer that can produce it. So um, I might have to go to China soon to just sort of see if there's somebody, they have like a trade show coming up where you can, where you get basically all the phone case um, manufacturers in one place. And that's really important because they all are located um, near Hong Kong. And so it's really important to be able to have access and get over to them and be able to have the conversation as to whether they can produce this or not. Otherwise I'm going to have to find, um, I'm pretty sure somebody will be able to do it, but that's, what's holding me back right now is the prototyping. And, um, also that I need the investment because in order to get, um, I know it might not seem like it, but in order to get any type of fashion line, even if it's accessories off the ground takes, uh, it, it takes a lot of money. So that's the, that's sort of where I'm at right now with getting that done. And the goal is to launch by January, if I'm lucky, December. <laughs> so we'll see. Nice. Well, I mean, hopefully from people that are listening, if they want to find out 
more about it. We'll talk, you know, at the end of the interview about, you know, links so people can check it out or if they want to get in touch with you to support or anything like that. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So before all of this, um, and I also want to talk about kind of what we mentioned a little bit before we started recording, which is your your agency Provoke. Uh, before this, you worked at Amazon as a senior designer. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you did there? Yeah, uh, that was awesome. And um, I actually encourage any designer listening to check them out. I know I, I don't know about other people, but I was hesitant uh, to go to Amazon and they recruited me for like, I don't know, three years maybe to come on board. And I just kept saying, no, no, like, I don't like your design. <laughs> um, and I remember when I finally gave it a shot after I left the Hillary campaign because I really love fashion. And um, I was in touch with one of my connections that's there that kind of runs their internal creative agency at Amazon. And I was saying, you know, I kind of want to get into fashion. So I'm not sure if Amazon is going to be a great place for me right now. And he said, um, you know, I think I can get you in at either shop bop or I can get you in at Amazon fashion. And I said, all right, well, you know, let's see what you're talking about. And then I'll think about it. And so he got in touch with um, Amazon fashion and they set up like a little coffee shop, you know, interview with me and it went really well. So I decided to give it a shot. And I think it was um, one of the best decisions that I could ever make, because even though I wouldn't necessarily say that Amazon is known for amazing branding, um, well, and in the visual aesthetic sense, I would say they are not necessarily known for that. Um, but the business, um, the the business skill set that you learn there is absolutely, absolutely like no other company. The amount of innovativeness that they have and the amount of uh, of ownership you have as a designer to lead the projects and come up with the concepts are, I think, unmatched from what I have seen hmm. from other companies. Um, so I, I think it was a great opportunity and I got a chance to work on the Amazon fashion branding and um, visual identity. I got a chance to work on Prime Wardrobe subscription service, which is a I don't know exactly how much because I think the numbers haven't come out on the revenue for its first year. It dropped in 2017 or 2000. I think it dropped officially in 2018, like last summer, like almost a year ago it dropped. So the official numbers haven't come out yet, but it's a subscription service where you get to try before you buy and get close to your doorstep for free for Amazon Prime members and you try on the clothes and then you, the ones that you don't want to keep, you put them in the box. So it's sort of like a risk, um, risk-free subscription service. And um, you, you either leave it on your doorstep or take it to, you know, your local shipping and have it shipped back for free. All of it is for free and except for the stuff that you keep. So doing the branding behind that with what I did it with um, another designer, um, we were the ones that primarily got a chance to um, work on it. That was a really awesome opportunity because that is a huge program for Amazon. And so seeing how the logistics behind that works was 
awesome. And in a sense, it sort of teaches you how to run something on your own because you're not strictly doing production. You're in all the meetings and everybody has the right to give an opinion about behind um, how something is produced. Mm -hmm. I think as a designer, that's a game changer in many ways, because many times I think, um, on the client side, we can be looked at as production only. And don't get me wrong, Amazon sometimes has um, can struggle with that a little bit as well. But I think overall, the type of the type of leadership you get to take in a role it expands beyond your day to day, you know, um, job responsibility, so to say. Yeah, it sounds really surprising. I didn't know that there was such a rich kind of design culture at Amazon like that. I mean, from my end as a user, that's really all I think about is just fulfillment and how they ship or how they, you know, have inventory and things like that. What's something else about working at Amazon that you think people would be surprised to know? Hmm. I think they would be surprised to know that um, our teams were they they have small teams. So we're really um, I don't want to say isolated, but there is uh not a ton of transparency into what everybody's doing. So I don't have any idea what Amazon Prime team is doing. I have no idea what Alexa team is doing. Like I am on Amazon Fashion. And to be honest, within Amazon Fashion, I did not know what exactly what teams were doing in Amazon Fashion. You really, really work with just what you have in front of you mm. and the people that work with you on that project. And so they call those, uh, I, I'm pretty sure they still call them, call it this, but it's called two pizza teams, meaning that every team should be able to feed their team with two boxes of pizza, <laughs> pizza. So, um, and they keep it that way so that you can become a, an extreme expert and specialist and just kill it with the, with what you have in front of you on your plate in your team. And it actually, I know that might sound weird, but it works really well and keeps them ahead of the curve in just about every segment. So think about it, you know, taking over whole foods and, um, and just about, I sometimes feel like every other industry um, that they are going after <laughs> it's because of these two pizza teams that they create um, and I think that that was a really strong decision. And the reason behind that is so that you can always, our teams can always feel like they're in startup mode. What the drawback is, is that there aren't a lot of people on the team. So that means that you're wearing many hats. That means that, you know, you can't say that's not my job. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you get, mm -hmm. you get a chance to touch so many different things and um, have an opinion uh, across so many different things to make sure something gets produced really, really well. And, and we don't pay attention as hard to like what our competitors are doing. We basically get together or, and, and brainstorm the heck out of something. And until we can make it until it's something that we haven't seen before, or until mm -hmm. it's something that we can really dominate in it. And, and it's not even necessarily trying to dominate, but it's trying, we're constantly, um, we call it being customer obsessed. So we create something, we test it, we create something, we test it. Okay. We see that they're not responding to this, test it again. And um, designers work on that with the visual aspect. And until we have something where the customers absolutely love it to death, we're not putting it out. So that's sort of that. I think that's 
pretty surprised. I thought that was surprising because I really did not know that that's how um, it worked. But in the end, that ended up being like really awesome takeaway for me to see and be able to be a part of. Nice. Now, I learned about you from Ida Woldemichael, who we had on the show last year, and you both worked on the Hillary for America campaign. So I'm curious to know, how did you first get involved with working with the campaign? Oh, that's funny. Um, I I wasn't looking for it. So uh, I was working for myself and I had my own studio. Uh, it was still Provoke back then. And it was just me at the time. And I was working with different clients. I think my last client before that was like Sephora and I had just finished up with that and I was getting ready to move on to like a beauty client. And right around that time, I got a call from um, the the design director from the Hillary campaign. And she just asked me like, Hey, you know, this is the Hillary campaign. We love your portfolio. And we heard about you from, uh, they, they said somebody they heard about me from, and they were just like, we want to see if you're interested in, in coming on board. And I was just like, Hmm, I'm not sure because the honest truth is I wasn't sold on Hillary at that time. And I can remember I called my mom and I was like, mom, like, what do you think about this? Like, I don't know. It wasn't that she had done anything wrong. It was that I genuinely did not know much about her. And I just, and I wanted to be sure that I supported everything that, you know, she was about. And so I called my mom and my mom, you know, just basically told me, Hey, you know, um, she explained how Bill Clinton, when Bill Clinton was president, it helped her tremendously and how it was when he was a president, when he was the president that she was able to afford to buy a house um, and how she, uh, her pay increased on her job. And she knew and she was able to link how um, how it was directly uh, tied to some of his policies and things. And so I was just like, OK you know, what about Hillary? She was like, well, she's all about making sure women get paid equally. And that's what I want. And I think that you should really consider it because, you know, she's really broken down many doors for women and she doesn't get the credit she deserves. So I was just like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to think, I'm going to think about this. And I, and if my mother's opinion is really big to me, so if she's saying go for it because she wants equal pay, I'm going to probably say yes. So I, I remember I, I remember I went in for an interview. And then when I met the team, I was just like, oh, my God, like, I love all of you guys. And, you know, I've, I've never been able to design for such a great cause. And I'm a very conceptual person that doesn't believe in just designing, you know, without a reason behind it. And mm-hmm. so I finally had something that was extremely important, meant a lot. And then once I just started to pay a bit more attention to the things that were going on around me politically, it was sort of a no brainer. So um, I I shut I I shut down shop and I I went ahead and just joined them full time, which meant that, you know, you don't get any days off. (laughs) You know, you work Monday through Sunday and and you just sort of go hard all day long. But I don't regret any any bit of it. It was like one of the best times of my life. Nice. I I really like how, you know, and I've spoken to different people who've worked on the campaign. I spoke with Mina Markham. I spoke with Ida. And of course, speaking with you now, and there's always just this like warm, effusive praise about 
how well designed, or really, I guess, how well the campaign went um, in general. So it's really good to hear that. Now that you've kind of had some time away from it, what did you learn from the campaign? Like, what did it teach you being in that experience? Hmm. I believe that I learned that I wanted to, one, that that life is too short for me to just work jobs that I'm not extremely passionate about. Mm. And now I won't, I won't just go and work anywhere because they pay me well, or I won't just take on a project just because, you know, it's a project, (laughs) you know, I, I want to be able to add something and I want to work with companies and brands and people, projects, concepts that mean something to the world and they're adding something. Mm-hmm. Like I just pay a lot more attention to what I do and what I contribute my time to. I think also Hillary taught me a lot about myself. Um, I began to study her and, you know, the the walls she's broken down, the barrier she's broken down for women. And I tell people all the time, you know, the media has done a good job of making her look like the bad guy. But if you just take the time to research her history and look at the things that she was the first to do, um, where she was the first to do something, it just that alone will change your mind because I need like a legal pad to write down all of her first. She's done so many firsts as a woman that people do not have any idea about their minds would be blown. You know, mm. um, I always, and, and I think that inspired me to want to strike out on my own or I've always wanted to strike out on my own, but it really put a fire under my butt to go after what I really wanted. You know, I, I felt like I could really do it once I saw her. You know, and humanly saw her, not from afar. Like she came in, we got to meet her, you know, like she she interviewed, you know, many of the positions herself. Like she gets stuff done. I have never seen that before. And a person that like walked the walk, it made me say, I want to be that transparent. It made me say, I want to be that honest, even though I I know a lot of people might not feel the same way. I saw an an honest individual and it inspired me to want to do great things in that way. So now the campaign's over. And of course, as you said, it's empowered you to want to be able to sort of give back and, and work with other businesses and things, which is why I'm assuming you started Provoke. But talk to me more about what Provoke is, about the work that you do. Uh, Just like tell our audience about that. Okay. So Provoke is a brand consultancy, but it's also a design firm, so so to say. But I think the difference between this and what many other designers do is that I believe in um, providing brand strategy first before jumping into design because... I don't believe there's a reason to have design if there isn't a strategy. And I think sometimes as designers, we think that strategy is um, is just solving a problem visually. But the problem needs to have purpose. And if it doesn't matter how great the design is, if it isn't conceptual, it doesn't mean anything. So um, I offer branding brand strategy first to basically dissect the brand, um, the company, the startup, or even if it's somebody's personal brand to dissect that 
literally down to the T to position them to get their um in the sense of meaning um getting their brand positioning together um you know, figuring out who their target audience and making sure that they have the correct target audience. You'd be surprised how many startups and even medium sized companies don't have that right. Um, and so we break all of that stuff down before moving into design and design, even though we all want to get to it, that might not be what they need. You know, I might find another problem that needs to be solved before they can even touch design or we can even think about design or their product might not be right. You know, Uh, so so we have to get all that that stuff down first, because otherwise we'll be creating a design that, um, you know, maybe isn't isn't honest, isn't transparent, isn't authentic, you know, Um, doesn't separate them at like, let's say they sell a commodity, some sort of commodity product. Well, if I just give them a pretty design, am I really separating them from the competition? Mm-hmm. You know, so I believe that especially for boring companies, B2Bs, you know, they're, they're not the most exciting. Finding a way to separate them, finding a story that's really true, you know, because I think coming off of um, if you think about. Uh, before prior to social media in the internet age, brands could tell us whatever they wanted and it did not have to be true. You know, it could be like, this is a nutritious meal. Look, the box says this is nutritious, you know, and and then come to find out once social media comes, you get exposed by the customers who say, no, what they're telling us is not true. And, mm-hmm. and now we have to hold them accountable. And um, Gen Z, who's coming after millennials now, they do not purchase. Um, they're not loyal to brands, I should say. Not, not that they don't purchase, but they're not loyal to brands that will not, um, that, they do, that do not share values with them, common values that are authentic with them. They won't become loyal to them. So it's even more important now to make sure that as designers, we walk hand in hand with companies first, understand what their offerings are, um, try to find, help them find their story. Because to be honest with you, most companies really don't know how to do it unless they are in a um, financially, in, in, a, in a position financially where they can get some help in that area. And to be honest, a lot of companies don't even, they're not aware or privy to the need and how serious this is going to be for them down the line. And um, I think, especially for minority businesses, we um, cut ourselves out of market share when we don't take our branding and our storytelling seriously. Hmm. So, so yeah, that, that's, that's sort of, I guess the long form <laughs> explanation of what I'm doing with uh, provoke. And I'm, I'm really excited about the offerings. I want to dig in a little bit more with what you said there just at the end about minority businesses, because it's something that, I mean, I'm passionate about before I started with the work that I'm doing now. I had my own studio for nine years called Lunch. So I know exactly what you mean about making sure that strategy is is a part of the design. And I'll tell you, for me, my business didn't like level up until I took that seriously, until I made sure that that was something that I was offering to clients I would say by default, because what I think I was doing before is I certainly was doing the design aspect. You know, I was a, I was a good 
pair of hands. I was a mechanic, essentially. Like I could come in, I could do your logo, I can design your WordPress theme, et cetera, et cetera. But not really seeing like how that solved what your goal is. And sometimes I would find clients didn't even want that. And so maybe part of that is just how you qualify what are the right types of clients for you to work with? Mm-hmm. Because not every client is going to want to do a strategy session or a branding session before they get into whatever the final deliverable is. They just want what they want and they may not have put the thought into it or, you know, for whatever reason, uh, some people just need that. And I think that's fine, but that doesn't mean that you as a designer necessarily have to serve that if that's not what it is that you want to offer. Agreed. You, you don't. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not as pro designing a brand without strategy first, or I will tell them ahead of time, listen, if you, and if, and I know that maybe, you know, some people might think that this is about money, but it's really not. I really am passionate um, about anybody that any, any brand that I work with, I'm taking it mm-hmm. on because I believe in it. If I don't believe in it, I won't, I can't work on it because then everything that I'm preaching cannot be true, you know, from transparency to authenticity, you know, it can't be true. But uh, if I believe in the product, then I'm going to tell you, hey, you're going to sell yourself short here if you come out and just put out something pretty, you know, and, and, and when I click on your website, I don't know what separates you from every other competitor, competitor immediately. You know, like you need to immediately be able to speak to me and you have a very short span of time to do it. And so if you, you know, want this, then sure, you know, maybe I'll go ahead and do it. But I have to be honest and upfront with the risk that um, are going that you're going to take with with skipping out on this process. And to be honest with you, if you have the right conversation and it's not even more so about telling them so much as it's about guiding them. And just saying, hey, you know, asking them questions, it's really like therapy. (laughs) You know, it's like asking them, hey, you know, what, what, why aren't you, uh, what, what are your business goals? You know, and they give you their business goals and then you say, so what do you think is stopping you from getting there? That has nothing (laughs) to do with design. Nothing to do with design, right? I'm asking you, what is stopping you? And then they're just talking. You know, they're telling you, you know, essentially all the issues that they're having with their business. And you're able to observe and say, all right, I have all of this information based on this information. I can tell you that you need to work on A, B, C, D and E, you know, and if you don't, you're going to you're going to have a glass ceiling there. You're not going to go up from there. So it's not. And that's why I said that branding might not even be the issue. You know, it's not always the answer to everything, even though a strong brand um, does get you somewhere. But if your product's crap, you know, or your offering has an issue or you're not honest here, you know, or, you know, whatever issue there might be, we've got to figure that out first. Right. And once we figure those things out that are the problems and how to solve it, then we can position you in a strong way um, that separates you from your competitors, especially if you're a commodity brand, you know, which is the greater majority. Most people that put something out are not putting out something new and innovative. They're putting out something that already exists. And if you're putting out something that already exists and you want to be the next Coca-Cola, you know, 
what are you doing that's different? What are you providing me that's different? Why should I be loyal to you? Mm-hmm. And if the, and the company needs to think about that. And most of the time, they don't. They think just because they're selling it and they think that they're special, that that's enough. No, it's not. It's not enough. You, yeah. So once we have that conversation, a lot of times they have an understanding because really, to be honest, I'm not doing the majority of the talking in the situation I'm asking questions and they're coming to the conclusion on their own. I know what you mean about it being like a therapy session. You'll sit down and you'll talk with the client. And then as more things are uncovered, then you can get to the root of the issue. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm curious to know this. You didn't start out studying design. What did you start out studying when you went to college? Man, uh, (laughs) I started out studying psychology. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I, <laughs> I have a bachelor's in psychology and funny story is that I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. Actually, I love my mom, but like she sort of steered me in like this route um, uh-huh. because, you know, I feel like in minority households, we have like a lot of pressure to, you know, especially if you have more conservative parents to like pick uh, pick a a field that's gonna you know make everybody proud. So I went with psychology because I was always helping people and giving people advice. Like at, I mean, at a very young age, and so it seemed like it made it made sense. So I went to school for psychology. Um, I think in the end, it really helped me because I have a deeper understanding of people and how they work. Um, even um, organizational psychology, which I did get a chance to dig into quite a bit, which also teaches me how businesses work and mm-hmm. and their thinking and how people relate to that. Right. And so I think that that was around that time was sort of around the organizational psychology space. I started to think about business and I, I started to have like a hunch that I eventually wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I actually tried to take business in college and um, like pick it up as a major and for like, I don't know, maybe like two semesters. And what ended up happening <laughs> is I took accounting and accounting scared me so badly And I was struggling so badly because I'm like not a math person. Like I'm totally white, right brain. So Mm -hmm. I was struggling so bad that I was like, dude, drop, drop business. Like right now I went, I like ran back to psychology. And so, um, I ended up getting into studying like, uh, neuropsychology. It was like my very, one of my very last classes. And I liked it so much that I, I like pivoted and decided to go to school for neuroscience. So I, what ended up happening was I picked up like a summer program at Morehouse School of Medicine, which by the way, for people out there is for both men and women. It's not like the same as Morehouse undergrad. (laughs) They're probably going to be like, excuse me. Like, well, I, I, I graduated from Morehouse, so they know that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> like, cause every time I say I went to Morehouse School of Medicine, people are like, "But that's for men." Are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> and I'm like, "No." Like, <laughs> it's for men and women. Right. It's a co-ed school. It's a co-ed <laughs> school. So, um, I went to Morehouse School of Medicine, and I uh, studied neuroscience, and I got accepted into the PhD program, and I also got a full ride and a stipend. 
and a chance to go to an Ivy League in the summer um, to enter the NASA program. So my family was like so proud, but I ended up like hating my life. (laughs) So I was like, dude, like, I don't like this. It was just like me and like a bunch of like mice all day studying, like having like this longitudinal study and like, it was okay. But like, I don't want to work with mice. I'm a like social butterfly. So please like, don't do this to me. Um, and so anyways, I found that I started studying business at nighttime, like just on my, I don't know. I just started doing it and I started to have the itch to like get into advertising and, you know, be creative. And so I ended up, (laughs) I ended up getting out of that and I went to school to get my MBA instead. And in the middle of that, somehow, I really cannot tell you, I talked my way into an advertising agency, which is like unheard of if you do not have advertising experience or a, um, uh, a education in advertising. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going, um, getting into like a medium sized agency in search engine marketing because social media and uh, digital marketing was so new. You could teach yourself and schools, you know, had not started teaching that yet. So that's how I was able to get in. And um, that was like the beginning of my career in that. And I ended up seeing the graphic design department and I, I kept trying to go over there and they wouldn't let me. They were like, share, like, you don't have a portfolio. Like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just like, like, let me in, please. and so they were like you gotta go back to school I was like but I just finished my MBA like please don't do this to me um they were like you don't have a choice so essentially in order for me to like move on to another agency and get in as a designer even though I started like I started I taught myself web design I was building websites when it was like so new um I was I taught myself how to do a ton of things in design infographics Mm. It didn't matter because I didn't have a portfolio. And so nobody wanted to give me that shot. So I that's why I went to Portfolio Center in Atlanta for, um, I guess you can call it visual design or communications design. And that's sort of how I got my start um, in design. So, yeah, that was like the longest, craziest, like road. <laughs> had so many pivots jesus i don't even know how i made it through but i finally like figured feel like i figured out a part of my life's calling you know uh-huh. i'm a i feel like i'm a designer slash um entrepreneur so in a sense i think that my background actually suits me pretty well yeah you know Um, and I think that now I have a really, to be honest with you, in many ways, I see myself as a businesswoman more than a designer, Mm. um, because I have an understanding of business, um, in a different way now that I don't think most business people have an understanding for, Yeah, you know, having understanding for design and bringing that to business is something I almost never see. Um, I very rarely ever see it. So, yeah, I was going to say your background definitely, you know, it suits what you're doing right now with provoke because you have the psychology experience so you can dig into the client and the user and find out the motivation behind why they make certain changes. You've got the MBA. So you have the business acumen in terms of like 
you know, reading a balance sheet and profit and loss and all that sort of stuff. But then you also have the design experience from going to design school. And yeah, the confluence of all three of those things is very rare, uh, whether you're self-taught on, you know, one or two of these things or not. So I can see where you're coming from with that. I mean, being able to bring all of that to the table is a huge asset. And you work for a political campaign. And so just in terms of networking, like I'm pretty sure after the campaign, there was no shortage of like, oh, I could work here if I wanted to. I could work here if I wanted to. Or even if not that, just people you could get in touch with for more work or for other opportunities after the campaign, because campaigns tend to be this this little they're like a little startup in a way. You know what I mean? Like there's so many moving parts to it and it's all running like its own business for a very short period of time. And so everything is, it's like a microcosm. Everything is, is very condensed in that. And then once the campaign ends up going, of course, you're all acquainted with each other. You know, you're all alumni because you've been through the same type of experience, but then just the, the reach that you have after the campaign, I mean, and I say this as someone that worked on like a mayoral campaign like mm-hmm. 10 plus years ago, <laughs> I still am able to reach out to people and have connections from that. So the wow. fact that you've been able to do, I mean, the fact that you're doing this now outside of a presidential campaign, I'm telling you, I'm telling you down the road, it's going to suit you well. Absolutely. And if you know, you're right, you're right about that. It really does like it opens up the doors like nothing else yeah I don't any of to be honest I don't know many people that came off of the campaign that actually I remember towards the end of the campaign Mm -hmm. a bunch of companies came they were like waiting to hire us I want to say Facebook came yeah Google came like all sorts of amazing companies came I think I was not there that day because I got deployed to uh Raleigh North Carolina Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the campaign to door knock and help turn the state blue. So um, I don't think I was there when that happened. I definitely wasn't there when that happened. But I remember I remember hearing about all the opportunities that everybody was getting before the campaign was even over. So, um, so yeah, it, it actually really did open up doors, many doors, and um, I'm really thankful for it. I actually want to know whose whose campaign did you work on ten years ago? Okay, so it was Lisa Borders' campaign. Okay, when she when she was running for mayor. Uh-huh. Um, I was the director of new media for her campaign. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. How was that? <laughs> it was a surreal experience because it was the first set of municipal races that happened right after Obama got elected the first time. And so you had all of these politicians that were trying to figure out how do I use social media so I can get votes like Obama? And it's like, <laughs> and I mean, back then you're like, that's not, I mean, it's just a, it's just a part of the toolkit, yeah. social media and the engagement. It's not the way to get votes like politicians would think. And, and to be clear, we tried to work with several politicians that were running for mayor at the time we were trying to work with, I mean, I can say this now cause it's a decade or so yeah. out, but we were trying to work with, uh, Jesse Spikes, who was this lawyer that was running. We were trying to work with Kasim Reed's campaign, who ended up winning. Um, and like, it was hard to get them to not see that Twitter followers do not equal votes. Twitter followers means you just have a larger audience to pull from. Yeah. It does not mean votes, but back then didn't matter. Didn't matter. 
Um, and so we were doing at the, at Lisa's campaign, we were doing everything from, my goodness, we had a MySpace page. (laughs) (laughs) See how long ago this was? We, we had a MySpace page. We had, uh, Flickr. We had Twitter, Facebook, cause Instagram wasn't out yet, I think then. Yeah, this was 2000. nine is 2008 2009 so so instagram was not a thing we had Flickr, and we like literally took pictures and uploaded them to Flickr or whatever um we had about seven or eight different social media things we were running on a wordpress site um i think a lot of people at the time said that we kind of had the best like social and web presence which to me was was flattering because i'm like we kind of don't know what we're doing um because no other the only people we could look to to do similar things like this was like, oh, well, what did the Obama campaign do? Yeah. But then the Obama campaign has millions and millions of dollars and hundreds and hundreds of people. And we're like three people in a in a warehouse building downtown near Centennial Olympic Park trying to, like, figure this out. You know, Yeah. Uh, it was it was really something. And see, I was how old was I at the time? I was. 28 i think 27 28 something like that and i didn't know i didn't know what i was doing i had just quit my job the year before like obama got elected i hated the job that i was at and like that empowered me to like strike out on my own so i quit my job started my studio had a little bit of money saved up for like three months so i could like try to figure out how to get clients and all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. and then fell into this uh thing where i ended up working with the uh, lisa borders campaign and so part of it was just like look i just need to keep working so i can keep eating you know (laughs) i was like i was like i need to keep working so i can keep getting paid so i can keep paying my rent so let's just make this happen and then when the campaign um because we had some turnover in the campaign as as i think happens with campaigns it, I think it got to about like June or July and they like cut half of the staff and like me and some other people were still the ones remaining and we got a new campaign manager who was Stacey Abrams. Wow. So yeah, Stacey was Lisa's campaign manager. I got, I've worked with her for a while on, on this stuff too. So seeing her rise is like, like galaxy brain, you know, like see how she's, how she's doing now where I'm like, man, I remember we were like sharing pizza like going over Lisa's campaign like 10 plus years ago. Um, And, and and like, we're really just trying to really just figure it out. Cause we didn't, I'm not saying we didn't know what we were doing, but I felt like we kind of knew enough about social media to know what not to do. Mm -hmm. So we knew that there were certain crowds that we would be able to reach and that we wouldn't. So if we were on Twitter, we know we could reach like, younger tech savvy millennials Mm -hmm. that knew about the platform because Twitter was still pretty new back then. I think Twitter had been out maybe for about two or three years then. Um, We could reach a lot of the old heads on Facebook because that's where they, that's just where they were at. Um, So we had to kind of figure out where people were, how we use the tools to drive engagement. So we wouldn't necessarily put the same message on Twitter than we would on Facebook one, just because of like the limits of what you could say in terms of character count Mm -hmm. and stuff. Uh, a lot of it was really just like trial and error, trying to figure it out. Um, and you know, it's politics. So I'm not going to lie and, and not say that it was all above the board, that it was all above the belt, you know, <laughs> like there was some, there was definitely some opposition research and some things planted. And oh, so this is what was probably much bigger. Well, no, it's probably, it was probably, it, well, it was big during the 
uh, the 2016 um, campaign and stuff. Uh, comments on other blogs. Woo! Monitoring comments and like seeding comments. Um, yeah, kind of shady. I probably shouldn't be admitting to this. But I don't care. But <laughs> you know, like like seeding comments on popular political blogs to drive you know the conversation one way that we want it to go and. You know, all that sort of stuff. It really, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Looking back on it, it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot during that time. I made some great connections, met some great people. I still keep in touch, you know, with Lisa to this day. Um, I see Stacy, you know, now and then, but like Stacy is, is huge now, of course. So, um, but yeah, I still keep in touch with people from the campaign now. I was just talking with someone yesterday. We're trying to work together on a project. So like, yeah, it was really just trying to figure it out. There was no, game plan there was no strategy we were just trying to pick apart what like blue state digital did and like well how can we take that and scale it down to like the city of atlanta to try to do a similar type of thing and so i would and i was you know a designer so i would design mock-ups for projects that she wanted to have i would make logos and all this sort of stuff uh it was fun it was grueling because I was the only one there that had some like design and social media skill. We had, you know, volunteers and things, but they were knocking on doors and, you know, putting out yard signs and stuff. So lots of late night strategy meetings, lots of just, I don't know, just trying to figure it out. We used YouTube a lot, you know, with video. This is back when we had, um, I, I mean, did phones have cameras back then? I'm saying this like it's like 50 years ago, but like we had these little, uh, flip cam. You remember the flip cam? Yes. We had flip cams that we would use to get video and yeah, it was a fun time though. And I look, I look back on it fondly now yeah. that it's so long ago. I know at the time I was just like, I'm just trying to get through to the next day. Like, yes, <laughs> this is yes, killing that's me. True. <laughs> that's true. You're just trying to get through. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so intense, you know, um, yeah. that you, you can't really see the end, you know, because you're just trying to get through like each day and no day is the same, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and and i'll tell you and what's different i think from a presidential race than a mayoral race is that with the mayoral race we would be so fierce and in the game and a lot of it was so much just inside baseball that i would go like i don't know like if i, I had a day off or something and i've gone in the world people don't care People did not care about who was voted for whom and what their policies were. They just voted for who they liked. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of would put stuff in perspective, like, man, we are really spending all this time. And that's not to say that average Atlantans didn't care, but they probably didn't care. So you would do all this work and you'd wonder, like, well, what is it? What does it mean in the long run? Like, what is it? What is it standing for? Whereas I think with a presidential campaign, it's probably different because mm-hmm. everybody's talking about it. It's on the news. It's on the media. But there would certainly be times where I'd step outside of, I, I could step outside of the election bubble and it was radio silence. Yeah. No, I think that we have, I think we actually have some more similarities than you think because, I mean, the similarity that I'm, I'm primarily hearing is that, um, on the, on the presidential campaign, people did also vote for who they liked. Yeah. Like, a lot of times it didn't even come, it did not come down to policy. Um, you know, even for example, being that Hillary had a lot of policy for women, but yet, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. many women still did not vote for her, even though it would have been, a, it would have benefited them in the end, you know, a lot of them voted for who they liked, 
yeah. um, you know, over what was going to help them, you know? And so that was, um, that was interesting to see, you know, and I think that I can't speak for everybody, but I kind of wonder if, um, if we knew that that was going to happen, you know, would we have gone a different route in, um, you know, how we positioned Hillary because, you know, inside the campaign, we got to see an amazing Hillary. To be honest, mm-hmm. I don't believe the world got to see. And you know what? I feel the same way about Lisa. I do. I certainly think that there is a perception. And, and she's aware of this, as I'm sure Hillary is aware of this, of how other people see her. Mm-hmm. And so she's very aware of that. It's, it's a It's a carefully crafted image. Like Lisa's got her St. John suits, her hair is always this way, her makeup's always this way, and that's who other people see when they saw her. Mm-hmm. But like the the Lisa that we saw in the campaign was funny and down to earth and would crack jokes with us and would sit up and eat pizza with us late at night and everything and it was like, man, like you could see like she definitely wants this, you know. Yeah. And then it then she go out and do the debates and things and the media would just like rip her apart and everything and and i think what was also kind of weird and i I don't know if this still happens with municipal races is how they would try to ascribe partisanship to the position like being a mayor is not a partisan position you're not a democrat or republican you're just a mayor you know what i mean yeah um but there was this whole thing going around and this was mostly fueled well it was all fueled by race there's no most in it um because the other person who was doing well in the campaign was a white woman her name was mary norwood and so because mary well you you live in atlanta mary lived in buckhead she's very very much a a buckhead betty as they would say um and so because of that there was the perception that she was a republican despite the fact that mary had a you know long history with city council and meeting with people all across the city it's like oh Mary's a Republican, Lisa's a Democrat. And I remember we did a, we did a commercial and this was like the commercial that pretty much was the nail in the coffin for the campaign, I think. Um, we, <laughs> we did a commercial and at one point in the commercial, someone like these people, these women from all different walks of life, which would never hang out in real life, but all these women from all different walks of life were talking about, um, Lisa and how she's great. And then one of them says, and she's a Democrat. And I'm like, what does that mean? That doesn't, doesn't mean anything and, and to me i was like well pack this up this ain't gonna work so but i mean the the experience of working in the campaign and being close with her and her her family was all throughout the campaign her both her brothers her sister her son like it was something where you got to see her as you know being with her family but then also we were kind of part of that family too because of the common cause of making sure that we got her elected so mm-hmm. It was a, it was a wild time, man. Ooh, it was, I, I can only look back on it fondly now. Cause at the time it was rough. Yeah. It was so rough. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, memory. yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That was so, that was something. Um, so what do you think helps fuel the ambitions that you have? Hmm. I mean, I, I, I have really big goals that I haven't told many people about. Um, and in order to reach them, I have to achieve certain other things first. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I don't know about specifically what all fuels it, but I put, I put all my goals, I write all my goals down and I put them like on my walls, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like 
and I look at them every day. You know what I mean? And I think about I think about how I can achieve it every day, you know, and every day I feel like I'm one step closer. You know, even though many times it feels like when you're on the road towards purpose that you are stagnant, it feels like, you know, you're not getting anywhere many times, especially when you have really big goals. But in the very beginning of getting those things done, it's like it's it's you're you're at the very base you know, of building blocks and making like the foundation for success. It takes so much work in the beginning. And it, it seems like, you know, many times it feels like it's never going to pay off, but I know it'll pay off, you know, in the end. Mm-hmm. So that's really what's fueling me is just the overall overarching goals that I have and how I want to, I want to leave a legacy. I want to be able to say that, in the end, I was able to help the helpless and the voiceless and, you know, open up doors for them that have not been open yet. I really, really want to do that, especially in the creative industry. Um, and there are some areas that we dominate creatively, and those are not the areas that I'm speaking of. I'm talking about, you know, areas that I feel like are more untouched. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to open up doors in those areas. And, and so doing the work, it just, (laughs) it's hard. (laughs) It's hard. Um, and, and, but I believe that I'll be able to do that. You know, also, um, one of, one of my goals is to be able to eventually get to a position where I can invest in, in founders and, and people that want to launch businesses, especially, you know, for people that aren't able to typically get the funding that they need, like me being a woman of color, trying to seek funding is not easy. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. And when, I, I can't remember the percentage, the percentage behind it, but very, very few women get funding. Yeah. Very few women get funding. Put minority women on that. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> you know, and and. Yet we are one of the groups that are launching businesses at the fastest rate. But what I'm finding is that we're launching with very little capital. Yeah. And as a result, we don't have a strong positioning. And in the end, you know, very few of us will really rise to the top because we are not able to provide the funding we need necessary upstream. And so, um, you know, I really want to be able to be of some help in this area and, and change that, be one of the people that change that, you know, and, and care about this space a bit more so that we can start to be in a, we are able to be in a position, um, to open more doors for one another. Yeah, I'm looking up the statistic now. It's 2.2%, which is a decrease from 2017, where it was 2.53%. Wow. Is that for women or... Um, that's for that's for women in general. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, that's, isn't that crazy? It's insane. And we have great ideas. We have so many great ideas. I see so many businesses and I want to help them so badly. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, be in a, a financial position to fund them or and right now be in a position where I can advise them. I give a lot of free advice. I give a lot of free advice. There have been many times, um, you know, where companies have come to me that uh, are minorities and they can't find funding and they just want advice on how to make it. And I and I will and a lot of times I give them the advice freely because yeah, yeah. you know I, I can't let it be manipulated or you know <laughs> thinking too far. But I try to give freely because I want to see them win. I want to see them you know be able to to get a slice of the pie, and they have excellent ideas. I've seen some have really innovative ideas, but they just they don't have the backing, and they and to be honest, they don't have the resources, the connections. They they're running low on everything. So they essentially launch and it never goes anywhere. They're never able to build the brand awareness. They have very little following, yeah. if any. And a lot of times they go out of business in a couple of years. It's really sad, you know, these glass ceilings. And 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 that's a part of the that's a part of the goal I have. That's one of the goals that I have to um uh to break that ceiling. So yeah, well, you know. Wish me luck on that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you've got what it takes to make it happen. Definitely. When when you look back at your career, what do you wish you would have known when you first started? Hmm, that's a good question. What do I wish I would have known? You know, sometimes I wonder if I were if I wish that I would have followed my dreams for going down the creative road from the beginning, because mm. a lot of times I feel like I'm really behind. A lot of people that I know that are in the same space that I am, you know, it would be hard to go and work for companies, consulting firms, you know, design agencies or in-house client side and people that, you know, essentially should be around the same age as me. Um, they might be creative directors, mm you know, and I was a, a design lead or, you know what I mean? <laughs> or at times, you know, just a designer, um, that was tough for me. And I felt really, really behind because I took the long road, you know? Um, but as I'm thinking about it now, that used to be a regret of mine that I didn't find the creative road early. And I wish I knew about it because to be honest with you, nobody told me about design when I was younger, like when I was in school, mm. I didn't even know it was an option. Like the most creative space that I saw, you know, um, other people that looked like me go into was like, I hate to say this and it's nothing wrong with it, but, um, <laughs> I would only see them going into like cosmetology or like, and that was like considered uh -huh. creative, you know, back then. And it is creative, but like yeah, only yeah. area. And I was just like, and my mother, by the way, I used to be, I used to, you know, be in that area when I was growing up, I would, I would do a lot of cosmetology to just pay to like have money in my pocket. And my mother told me very early, that's a no, like, don't even ask. <laughs> so, mm. um, and I, I respect her for it because you know, she was just trying to do her, her best, um, and raising me and she wanted to make sure I had the best. And so I don't, I don't fault her in any way, shape or form. She's amazing. Oh my God. But I think that the fact that I did not know about the creative field, it like took me a really long time to find it. You know what I mean? Like it, it took years, mm -hmm. you know, I went around 
the blocks a few times. So now I think that, um, but now when I think about it, I think in the end, it was probably better that I went this route because had I gone the typical design route, which is go to school for design, you know, you know, maybe go to a finishing school, um, and then get your career started early. I think that's amazing and awesome. And I think it's a great advantage that to find out early, but I think that the advantage that I now have is that I touch a few different areas now that are, that have great advantages in this field. Mm -hmm. And so I think in the end, I don't regret it, but I wish I, I do at least wish I knew about it. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's, that's fair. And I think, you know, certainly that feeling of, of thinking that you've sort of started late um, is something that I can empathize with because I didn't, I didn't go to design school at all. Excuse me. I didn't go to design school at all. I, my undergrad is in math. My graduate degree is in telecommunications management. I was doing design stuff on the side, like as a hobby. Like I started learning in, I think it was maybe my, my junior, senior year, if not earlier of high school was when the internet kind of started becoming a thing. And I was reverse engineering websites to try to figure out, Oh, how did they do that? Like marquee or how did they change this background color and stuff? Um, and this is like the late nineties. So there was no, general assembly or or treehouse or anything that could show you how to like do all of this stuff um and so i was doing a lot of stuff just on my own on the side you know doing little things for for people here and there not really knowing if what i was doing was enough and i got my first design job in in 2005 so i graduated i graduated college in 2000 like 2 2003 And I worked a bunch of just customer service jobs because I had a math degree and there were like two options. You could go to graduate school or you could teach math. And I didn't want to do either one of those. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't find really decent work. I was selling tickets. I was a telemarketer. Um, I finally got my first design job in 2005 and then worked for a couple of places around the city, worked at WebMD, worked at AT AT&T. And somehow, even in just those three years, I felt like that. And the combination of me doing, you know, just stuff on the side, I was like, I'm just going to strike out on my own. Like it was clearly a leap of faith to even do this. And I honestly think that if I wouldn't have landed in the campaign, that wouldn't have given me the push to continue to build my studio and have done that for nine years to get to the point where I am now. So like it, I understand that feeling of like, oh, I didn't go the traditional route. But I think the good thing about design is that there is no traditional route. There's a lot of ways people can come into this industry and still not only, you know, make a name for themselves, but also, you know, make a living. There's many ways to do it. But I, I can understand that feeling of 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 like I didn't you know, I didn't go to to Micah or well, you know what I mean? You didn't go the traditional route or you didn't start early enough. So you feel like you're kind of catching up. But I think you've got the unique mix of skills and experience that you're you're doing it. You're doing it right now. For sure. Thanks, Maurice. Also, that's really awesome that you were able to take that leap of faith, like, and just like launch out on your own. It's it's so many people that like they never do it or they limit themselves um, by being like, um, you know, keeping themselves at like a really basic freelance level, and mm-hmm. and they have they really have what it takes as problem solvers. Um, 
to really, we really can do many different things. And I, I can't wait till the world gets to a point where they realize the potential of designers to work in many different roles. We really can. Um, I don't think people realize how, how design can solve just about, I mean, even if it's not about design, just the problem solving skill set you yeah. have to have to be a designer can be applied so many different places. And I, I want to say that one of the main places I learned that at and, and got a chance to see that was Hil- the Hillary campaign and also um, Amazon. But, you know, actually the first place that I saw it was SY Partners, which is um, which is similar to IDEO. It's like an ideation company and, and, and they work with mostly Fortune 500 companies and they come um, to SY Partners to... Um, to get their problems solved, mm-hmm. any different types of problems. It's not just only design. It's like, hey, you know, we uh, we need to go after a new market, you know, and we don't have an idea how to do it. And all it is is designers who come into a room, sit down and brainstorm all day and problem solve for these companies. And they pay millions of dollars for that to happen. And it works. It works. You know, but the designer doesn't leave with like a new portfolio piece, but they leave knowing that they helped, you know, so-and-so brand expand, you know, Mm -hmm. or diversify their products or, you know, uh, create a new movement. You know, a lot of times we did things that had nothing to do with design at all. And so that was when I first learned that, whoa, like designers like we we can solve the problems for the world and and seeing the companies like IDEO and SY Partners frog you know seeing those companies like literally um position design in that way to solve those types of problems is really revolutionary and um, I, I I hope that designers are able to see that they can excuse me they carry that type of potential inside of them that they can solve anything yeah where do you see yourself in the next few years? What kind of work do you want to be doing? I'm hoping that Atara is a massive success. Um, <laughs> I'm ho- I really am. I'm hoping that it's a massive, a massive success. And I'm hoping that now this is a long shot, but I'm going to throw it out there. I'm hoping that I'm in a position to lend, to be a lender, you know, mm-hmm. to be a person that is invest, that is able to invest in other companies and, um, and, and help open doors for other companies. I'm hoping that even in five years I can do that. And I'm working, I'm really, am. I'm working, busting my butt to do this. So, um, you know, we'll see. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you, about your work, your projects, everything, where can they find that online? Okay. So you can find my company provoke online at we are provoke.com. Again, that's we are provoke.com. And also I'm on Instagram now be forgiving towards me because I just launched the Instagram for provoke. Um, as I have just, um, come back into being, um, having a full-time studio not too long ago. Uh, so I, I recently launched the Instagram for it and it is at we are provoke and Atara is, I'm, I'm still working on that on the back end. 
I have not made the website yet. So, um, but it will, the URL is atara.com, A-I-T-A-R-A-H.com, but it is not designed yet. So don't go there. (laughs) (laughs) going to be the name. That's going to be the name of the, uh, that's the the name of the phone cases. And I'm in the middle of getting that website done, but I want to, I'm trying, you know, if I'm going to sell brand positioning or um, brand strategy, I have to step forward and create the most bomb brand ever. Okay. So I can't just put anything out, you know, like I just, I can't do it. So I I am like, that's why I said, (laughs) I'm looking for the, I'm trying to get the funding that I need behind it. And I'm being extremely, um, um, I don't want to say picky, but I'm trying to be, you know, um, I'm trying to, to, to work at the details and the, the, and how intricate it's going to be every little piece of it. I'm, I'm really trying to design every touch point to the T so that it really creates an amazing experience that, that essentially like sets the tone for how I think branding should be, which is a different thing, you know, like, um, it's kind of like Warby Parker, but I don't, but not necessarily the same thing, but, you know, doing something that is like that, that, that takes branding to a new level and also brings excitement back to branding. So hopefully I, um, I, once Atara is done, you'll see something special there. Um, and that's really the only places that they can find me at the moment. Um, and I have a, do you usually share like LinkedIn's and Facebook's and things like that? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, for LinkedIn, it's, uh, at share biggers s h a r b i g g e r s okay sounds good well share biggers i want to thank you so much for coming on the show for sharing i mean not just i think the passion that you have clearly for entrepreneurship and and for design and everything but also sharing your story about how you got here i think you know for a lot of our audience it's really refreshing to hear that you can go and do other things or you can, you know, sort of come into this industry at any given point in time and still be able to make an impact. And certainly, you know, like I've said before, throughout this interview, you really come with, I think, the skills and the network equipped to really go far. So I'm I'm putting it out there, too, that in five years, you're going to get to where you want to be with uh, with what you want to accomplish. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, my God. Thank you, Maurice. Thank you for having me. I'm it's been like a pleasure. And thank you so much for the for, you know, believing in me. I really appreciate it. And I really can't (laughs) wait to see where you go with this. I think this is an awesome platform to have and so very needed. Please don't stop um, doing what you're doing. Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Cher Biggers and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Cher and her work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash Revision Path. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Deanna Testa and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Mandre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. 
If you like this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really helps spread the word about Revision Paths everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.